Okay. We've started in the middle, but that's okay. So what is Mara anyway? Some of you know. Some of you are discovering right now that Mara is your own mind. The forces of your own mind assailing you. Just as the Buddha's mind was assailed, even though he was very accomplished, he was so accomplished, as Bob said, that the teachers he worked with wanted him to be his co-teacher. He was the most accomplished in everything from the time he was living in the palaces. He was thought to be an athlete. He could. He was a Brahmin, so he was exposed to the, the Vedic uh, teachings. He was the most ascetic ascetic. He could outdo any other of his companions who were doing these in extreme practices of sitting in the sun all day, the hot Indian sun, of, of eating very little, of drinking very little, of exposing themselves to the elements. He was the most accomplished in all these areas. And so even he, sitting under the Bodhi tree, was assailed by the forces of his own mind, by Mara. So what were these forces? They're what you're experiencing right now, or have been experiencing through this retreat. He was assailed by the temptation of sense pleasures. So it's not, it doesn't have to be lust, or is it sometimes described, but he was assailed by, in this case, in the story anyway, by visions of beautiful women and all kinds of things, what are our visions of sense pleasures? Mmm, tasty food, soft beds, more sleep, um, music, your favorite music, your favorite, um, you know, we've all talked about how beautiful it is here, and aren't we attracted to the beautiful, all of us, in all of our senses? So he was assailed by the forces of Mara, by sense pleasure. And what he did is what we're going to practice with too. He acknowledged it. I see you, Mara. He could see that. He could, un he could acknowledge it. And then he had to he had to practice with it. That's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to practice with it. And practice has a very specific meaning, which we'll talk about in a little while. And then after, for us, after countless examples of practicing, we can understand, ah, this is what sense pleasure is. This is what the energy of the mind and the body is that propels us toward it. Hmm. Okay. So he was assailed by sense pleasure. He was also assailed by um, hatred. Mara released the armies against him, and then it was said that he could turn the arrows into lotus 
lotus blossoms. So our mind assails us with forms of aversion or hatred too. Self-judgment, criticism, you're not measuring up, you're not good enough. If you were a good yogi, you could, if you were a wise person, if I were only good enough, if only I could work a little harder, if only I understood a little bit more, all the ways in which we create a lot of ill will towards ourselves. And I don't know if the Buddha was assailed by what they call sloth and torpor, sleepiness, or restlessness, but in his life I'm sure that that's what happened. Those are other things that we're assailed by. Our mind assails us with sleepiness and restlessness, both bouncing sometimes from one to the other. And the other thing that the Buddha was assailed by was doubt. Mara said to the Buddha, who do you think you are? sitting in this seat of enlightenment. Who do you think you are? I think Ajahn Sumedho once said, you're nothing but a two-bit ascetic. (laughs) 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 So who do you think you are? What gives you the right to be here? What gives you the right to practice here on this seat of enlightenment and try to find freedom? And with that, the Buddha placed his hand on the ground, asking Mother Earth for confirmation of his right to be there. So this is a really important and significant gesture and symbol. And I hope you all, literally or figuratively, put your hand on the Earth right now and ask for confirmation Mm. that you belong here. Mm. You have a body. You are a human. The Buddha had a body, was a human. He touched the earth. We're from the earth. We have the earth element in us. And the earth responded. The earth responded, yes, you belong. The heavens opened up. Yes, you belong. So his journey is a template for our journey. We're chasing after pleasures. We're trying to avoid disappointments and displeasures. Sometimes we're totally tuned out. We don't see anything at all. And sometimes we have a lot of doubt. We don't know if we belong here. We don't know if we have the right teachings or the right teacher. And if we remember 
if we use his story as inspiration for our own journey with our hand on the earth asking, do we belong? Is it right for us to sit here right now as if we could find happiness? As if we could find a pathway to freedom? And the answer is the same for us as it was for him. Yes. Yes, you have the right to be here. Each one of us belongs. So what I've talked about, the forces that assailed the Buddha, and forces that assail us too, sometimes come to us as teachings as the five hindrances. To be really honest, I've never liked that word, hindrance. So I decided to find another one. Um, Hindrance, obstacle, they both have very similar but slightly different meanings. They have to do with uh, something that obscures, covers over, hides, blocks, gets in the way of. So these are movements of the mind that get in the way of our mindfulness and our awakening. The word I like better is challenge. To me, hindrance, obstacle, sounds kind of like a roadblock like something very difficult to get through. Like driving your car and all of a sudden there's a mountain of mud in front of you. So that doesn't sound very friendly or helpful to me. So I like the word challenge because it has something energetic. It has something hopeful. It says, Yeah, this could be hard, but it could be really interesting. It's worthy of our interest. It's worthy of our investigation. So if we think of the hindrances as worthy of our interest and investigation, you've already changed your relationship to them. They're no longer obstacles. They become doorways, doorways to mindfulness, doorways to awakening. So you probably could understand what one teacher said once. We have to understand before we start this discussion that there's really no such thing as a hindrance. I would add to that, it's only a hindrance if you don't see it. It's only an obstacle if you're unaware. And this practice of mindfulness really is about bringing awareness to our experience. 
but we have a lot of moments where we're not very aware, we're not very mindful because of so many reasons. Hmm. Get you stop and listen for a minute. <laughs> what a force, huh? Force of nature. So we're bringing awareness to these things because that's, that's what there is. There's awareness and reflection. Those are the things we work with. When we are lost or we're unaware of these forces, these movements of mind, it's like having a mirror. Awareness is like a mirror. It reflects back everything. But if your mirror is covered in one way or another, then you can't see. You can't see what the mirror is reflecting. So actually in the suttas, they, they talk about how the mirror, how water as a reflector is obstructed by various mind states. I kind of like this. I'm not really sure why. But they say if your mind is obsessed and obstructed by sense desire, it's as if you, very capable and with good sight, were to look in a pool of water to see your own facial reflection, but you wouldn't see it because the water is colored with dyes, with lack, turmeric, crimson and blue dyes and I really like looking up words so I found out what lack was does anyone know where t- what turmeric is turmeric is actually a food it's a spice it's a root very yellow if you get it on your skin you're going to be yellow for a long time so it's a good dye lack is made from a particular kind of insect shell and it's um interesting. Not only does it make a red resinous color, but it makes shellac. The shells of this insect make shellac. I think that's pretty interesting. So yes, all those dyes are in the water. You're looking and you can't see your reflection. So actually you can't access mindfulness. You can't see through. There's something in the way. That something in the way is sense desire. It's beautiful though. You know those colors are quite beautiful. So it's enticing. It promises a little bit of pleasure, a little bit of gratification. And that's the that's the hook. That's the hook. But of course, those sense pleasures are very temporary, as everything is. The next description is if, is when there, there's aversion, hatred, ill will, irritation, jealousy, antipathy. When there's that in the mind, what happens? There's no mindfulness because it's as if you are looking in a, 
Again, a pot of water that's been put on a fire and it's beginning to boil. And it's really boiling, it's roiling and it's moving around. And you can't see it. You can't, you can't access mindfulness. You can't use your awareness. And in addition, there's a lot of heat and a lot of agitation that accompanies it. So the third description is of sleepiness. I bet some of you have experienced sleepiness while you've been here. That used to be, we'll go over some ways of working with this in a bit. That used to be really a problem for me. And occasionally is now too. Sleepiness. It's as if the pond were covered with a coat of thick water weeds. So you live in this area. You know what those kind of ponds look like. They're covered with duckweed or algae. They're so thick, you wouldn't even know that there's water underneath. So you could step on that algae or duckweed thinking you were on solid ground and you wouldn't be. (coughs) So you wouldn't have an idea of mindfulness because the sleepiness acts as this thick growth that gets between you and it. And then there's restlessness they talk about. It would be as if you were looking at the pond and there was a wind coming and it was, it was uh, making little waves and ripples. And so you couldn't really see clearly. And to me, this vision was sort of like a, a funhouse mirror, a carnival mirror. You know, the kind that's completely distorted and you look really weird in it. Um, is that reminding you of an app you got? <laughs> Three members of my family use this app that you can take lots of different pictures and it just distorts you completely, <laughs> minimizes some features, and it just blows them out of shape. I should have brought one. <laughs> They're pretty bizarre. And you can't, I mean, you could sort of know that that was a picture of you, but not really. It's so distorted. So that's what restlessness does. And then doubt is like turbid and thick and full of dirt. There's no way to see. There's no light. There's no way through. So these are interesting descriptions, maybe, of uh, what the mind is like when there's sense desire or aversion or sleepiness or restlessness or doubt. So I hope through this, maybe you've recognized a few things that you have experienced in this retreat or maybe every day because they, uh, they come up all the time. I hope you don't think that if you practice, if you're really a good practitioner and you have a really good meditation um, session or that you practice for 10 years or 20 years, you won't have to deal with these anymore because it's not true. It's not true. They're part of our humanness, part of our human condition. Although there is a point at which they 
are suspended, and that's some of the jhana states that Bruce mentioned the other day, the deep absorption states. They're not present there, but again, this is a temp jhanas are a temporary state. But for a lot of us, they do keep arising. Does that mean there's something wrong with you? Does that mean you haven't practiced well enough? No. But the energy around it shifts in time. It stops being an enemy. It stops being a hindrance. It starts being just an area to investigate. Just something to attend to. And so maybe we'll take a look at some skillful ways of attending to these. In the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha actually gave a formulation for working with experience. And before I even tell you what the formulation is, we should say, what is experience? We keep using that word. What's experience? So I'm going to define it as what you see, smell, taste, touch, hear, and think. Those are the six senses. That's how we know our world. And we know our world through this fathom-long body, as Bob suggested last night. Everything we know about the world is from this body. And so we investigate our experience through our body. The Four Noble Truths, again, is the formulation, includes the formulation for how we are to practice, not only with this, but almost everything. For the Noble Truth of Dukkha, the Noble Truth of suffering or dissatisfaction or dis-ease, um, uncertainty, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge. We have to see it as in, I see you, Mara, or, hmm, aversion again, arising. You just have to see it. And the next thing you have to do is you have to practice with it. Maybe five million times. And I'm going to be specific about what I mean about practicing with it. And then after you practice with it, after you, you will have possibly a moment or two or three or more when this energy subsides, when it's gone. And that's a moment of understanding. That's a moment of neuroda, cessation, the ending. Just for a moment, maybe. But that's what it is. So let's Take an example. Sense pleasures. There have been so many sense pleasures we've been after all of our lives. Even while we're here on retreat where 
it's greatly dis- diminished. There's that, hmm, I wonder what's going to be for lunch. I smell something. Ooh, it smells pretty good. Oh, maybe I could. That's just moving right into sense pleasure. And it's not, it's not so much a problem. It's just something to be recognized. Sometimes we go chasing after sense pleasures one right after another. And again, there's that hook, that promise of pleasure. And the pleasure is there, and it lasts for some time. But we want more, and we go after the next one and the next. One of our problems is we mistake pleasure for happiness. They're not the same. I'll make a confession. I'm an aversive. There are supposedly more, but just as a somewhat comical, somewhat true way of assessing things, three personality types. Aversives, like me. Greedy types. I could name some. <laughs> and delusional types. <laughs> so you could think, and actually we all have little bits of all of these in us, but we have a tendency to react more strongly, more often one way than another. So they say one way of, um, of knowing which you are is if you go into a room and you start saying, oh, I like that. By the way, I like the color of that blanket. I think I'll get that one next time. And her zafu looks really good. And then you're probably a greedy type. If you walk into a room and you see everything you don't like, hmm, really tacky lights, or do they have to have a platform? that's, then maybe you're an aversive type. If you don't walk into a room and you really don't notice much of anything, then you're probably a delusional type. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm making this confession because it was really helpful for me to understand it on kind of a deeper level. First of all, I'll go, I'm going to go backwards and forwards, but where I learned about it and it was most helpful to me was when I was on a retreat, a six-week retreat at Insight Meditation Center. I thought, mistakenly, that yogis would know how to be quiet, would move quietly, wouldn't slam doors or clomp through the hallways or leave lights on or stuff all over the place, and it really wasn't that way. It was quite different, and I was feeling irritated. Um, Gosh, what's wrong with them? Don't they know how to behave? This is a retreat. We have guidelines, rules. And so I remember having an interview with my teacher, uh, Michelle McDonald, and I'm telling her, you know, what's going on, and she said, She looked at me and she said, well, of course, you're an aversive. And so what she explained, which became very clear to me, is, oh, 
Aversives are very sensitive to sound and light and maybe a few other things too. Oh, oh, I'm just one of them. I don't have to take it personally. It's something that just happens. And by reframing that, I could look at my experience, I could experience it differently. Not all at once. It took a long time after that, and it still does, of doing what I'm going to ask you to do, which is to acknowledge, and then the practice part is feeling it in your body. This is an embodied practice. It's not a thinking process. It's something that you do without words. So you acknowledge, oh. You locate it in your body to the best of your ability. And every, everything has a different location in a way. Sense pleasure will be somewhere different. Anger or irritation will be somewhere different in your body. Sleepiness, restlessness. So mostly it's in this front part of your body. This is where your emotional body pretty much lives. Some people have these reactive states in other places. So for me, um, irritation and anger might be, excuse me, tightening of the jaw, compression in the chest, you know, just tightening like that. And so if that were to happen, my practice would be relaxing to the best of my ability, feeling it right here, if that's where it is in the chest, staying there for a few seconds, not for a half hour. If it's that intense, it'll be really too hard to stay for a half hour. For a few seconds, and then moving away from it if it's very intense, or doing it again, same kind of thing. Acknowledging it, feeling it, sensing it in the body. And there is a moment, there may be a moment, not necessarily, where it dissipates and it's gone. That's a very important moment to recognize. Very important. That's a little moment of cessation, a little moment of neurota, a little moment of non-suffering. It may last only a moment, but that's okay. These are like little drops, little drops in the bucket. But don't underestimate the value and the power of those little drops. So that's the template. Acknowledging, practicing with, understanding. So a few things about various um, specific things that will help about the various hindrances. First of all, just as an overall idea, 
it's not only, these teachings aren't only enfolded in the Four Noble Truths. Also the three marks of existence, the idea that this is not personal. These are energies that arise. They don't belong to you. They don't mark you as a somebody. They're just energies that arise. Sense gratification, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. They're impersonal energies. So it doesn't make you, even though I said I'm, I'm an aversive, it was only for the flavor of it, only for emphasis. I could also say more skillfully, aversion arises often, or aversion is arising right now, if that's the case. That takes the eye out of it. I don't have to identify with it. So this experience is impersonal. This experience is also an example of dukkha, of dissatisfaction, of unease, of uncertainty, of incapability of satisfying. And it's also a wonderful example of the changing nature of all conditioned phenomena. Everything that you experience is changing. Sometimes it's in big change. Sometimes it's in little, subtle, tiny, minute changes. But when we stay with our experience, sights, sounds, touches, tastes, smells, thoughts, in this way of understanding the impersonality of it and the unsatisfactory nature of it, we can notice the change. We can notice it's coming and passing. We can notice its intensification or its dissipation. We can notice the change in quality, movement, force. So these are the things to keep in mind. All this experience has these three characteristics. It's not mine. It's going to change. And there may be some dissatisfaction somewhere within it. So with sense pleasure, what do we do about that? I gave you kind of the template for working with it as you're feeling pulled by it. If you're feeling pulled by, oh, I really need that, I want it. See, we've put a lot of attention on the it, on the object. We don't care about the object. Sense pleasures can be anything. What we care about is this energetic movement, this mm, moving forward toward trying to grab onto. So when we work with it, that's what we're attending to. That, that's the feeling. And rather than grabbing onto the object, the piece of chocolate or the next meal or the, what would it be like to just feel that energetic movement? 
well, we know it's impersonal energy arising. We know that that object, that sense object, that piece of chocolate is not really capable of satisfying for a little while, but not forever. And we know that this is going to change, this energetic movement. So what would it be like to stay with that often uncomfortable sensation? What would it be like? So that's one of your assignments, Mm -hmm. to stay with that energetic movement and to investigate. But some things that you might try, that I've tried, that I think are really interesting. Since I'm just like everybody attracted to the beautiful, I love outdoors. I love a beautiful sunset. I love the waves cascading on the beach. I love good food. I love all those pleasures too. But here's how we can balance it, at least one way. I take time, formal meditation and informal meditation, to attend to the non-beautiful. I spend time, say in meditation practice, eyes open. I do a lot of eyes open meditation. And I'll purposely direct myself to what's not beautiful. Dirt, dead leaves, refuse piles, whatever. Maybe you could investigate something that you never thought you'd be interested in, like a, we transport, we have a, a spider relocation program at our house because we don't kill them, so I catch them in a canning jar with a lid. But what that does is I get to really look at them, look at something that maybe you think is unlovely, and actually some of them have the most beautiful markings. So it's, a, it's an opportunity to investigate, to really attend to the unbeautiful. There are formal practices like 32 parts of the body, which does the same thing. It kind of changes the enchantment with beauty, the beauty of the body. There is beauty of the body, but there's a lot of non-beauty of the body. And we might as well know about that too. And there is a lot of beauty out there and in here, but there's also a lot of non-beauty. And it's part of what is, part of human experience, part of the world. So I find that kind of a useful way to counterbalance. And there's something, I don't know, humorous about it to me. There's something quite humorous. I don't know why, but it is. And then for aversion, irritation, anger, hatred, a, um, the usual remedy for that given would be metta practice, loving-kindness practice. But I really have to caution you. I, I, I'm a strong practitioner of metta, but I don't think it's useful to use metta practice without deeply sensing, feeling the energetic aversion, irritation, antipathy, whatever it is that's there, that's that's the 
it's the counter of, of sense pleasure, it's aversion, it's the pushing away, it's the not liking where you are. Being triggered by somebody who you see who you don't like, or something that you don't like. Recognizing it, feeling it, knowing Mara, knowing it. And then it would be a skillful time to do metta practice for yourself or perhaps that person. And in that, you actually reframe it. You reframe, um, you give a lot more space, put a lot more space around the experience of it and the person, him or herself, told you I was an expert in aversion. I started that way, I'm told, from the time I was little. I didn't like light coming into my crib when I was a baby. I'm told I cried a lot because of it. I didn't like light as a toddler either. I remember, you know, turning off the light in the hallway so I wouldn't have to see it coming in through the door. I have been teased about not liking being jostled, you know, bumped into, and so on. And um, some of these, by the way, are temperamental characteristics. It's a little bit about what you come out with. We, I work with nursery school children, and they all, there's such a variety, but sensitivity to light, touch, sound is one characteristic that children come out with and and oftentimes you can tell within a few months what this is for them. So you may be the product of that. We are all the product of something, aren't we? Um, And the way I had to practice with maybe these tendencies after I was assured by my teacher that I was an aversive, was to do just what we've been talking about. And it took a long time. I would say it took years. And there were so many examples of times when great irritation could have arisen. And the first thing I did was just say, no, just wait. Restraint first. And then practice with it. And then maybe remedy, maybe loving kindness. All those things help. But it's not skillful to jump over the feeling part. It doesn't work. It's not skillful to try to get rid of your bad feelings or your your angry feelings or your sense-pleasure feelings. So then there's sleepiness I mentioned. Some skillful ways I've found to work with sleepiness, other than some that are, have been suggested already, which is to open your eyes, let light in. That brings up the energy level. Stand up, do walking meditation. One way I've worked with it, which I really enjoyed, I mentioned that sleepiness was a big problem for me for 
it seems like the first three, four years, something like that. Um, and you know, a lot of us are chronically underrested. We don't get enough sleep. We're too busy. And even when we sleep, sometimes we're not rest. We're not rested even with that sleep. So something that's been helpful for me is to even ask the question, what is this? What is sleepiness? To really break it down, what are the physical sensations? What happens? For me, first it might be kind of burning eyes and then kind of muscles going slack in the face and then the head tilting back a little bit and then gone. So if I could recognize the first or second of these, it would be very helpful to me. Oh, yeah, that's this. And just recognizing it brings up some interest, some curiosity, and some energy. And at that point, of course, you're not being hindered by sleepiness anymore. Just like when you recognize aversion or sense pleasure, sense gratification, you're also not, you're not engulfed by it anymore. You've now directed your mindfulness toward it. For restlessness, what I do is that I will purposely slow down. If I'm driving and I'm feeling some urgency to get somewhere quickly and I recognize that, that feeling that feels very things popping out all over, I'll just make myself go slower. Whether I'm in a car, and in, whether I'm doing some kind of work, I'll purposely make myself slow down. And at first it feels difficult, and then it kind of brings the mind and the energy along with it. So that's been helpful for me. The whole idea of hurrying is really, and of getting things done quickly, is very much overrated. And the last one is doubt. I've had lots of doubt. I had lots of doubt doing this, um, preparing for this Dharma talk. I want to tell you what I did. I counted. I think I had maybe 21 pages of notes. Totally useless. I didn't use any of them. And this isn't all of them. I, I actually am just going to rip them up for you in front of you. But maybe I will. That sounds like fun. Okay, here we go. Useless. <laughs> Those are only some. So I had, <laughs> I had, the others are waiting to be burned. <laughs> so I had a lot of doubt doing this. Um, it just seems to be what happens. So um, sometimes doubt takes the form of, in practice, are these the right teachings for me? Maybe I ought to go over to the Tibetans. I think they've got it all together. <laughs> or are these the right teachers? Do they really know what they're talking about? And the answer is, of course not. 
<laughs> Don't worry about that one. <laughs> so, um, so sometimes it's suggested to talk to a teacher in that case or to do some reading. Also, I would say to practice with other people. Then you get, you can have some confidence. You can see what other people are doing without even knowing exactly what they're doing. Just, wow, there's seeds of possibility being planted right here. So this is very helpful for your, your practice too. So as long as you recognize the hindrances, there really are no hindrances. And we don't have to use that word anyway. You can make up your own word for it. I still like challenges. Challenges have hope. Challenges have possibility of change. Challenges are an invitation to investigate, to see what's really true. So it's said that these particular challenges cover up, make mindfulness or our mindful awareness inaccessible to us. They're not there all the time, but they do arise. And instead of looking at them as your enemy, you can look at them as, and this is, thank you, Vicki, as your precious gems, your precious teachers. It's really what they are. Everything, every challenge is a doorway, every single one. It doesn't have to be a big one. It can be a tiny little challenge. And I'd encourage you to start with tiny little challenges. And we build our capacity as we work with these, just as if you were at the gym working out. You build your capacity in time. And then we can be up and available and open to all kinds of challenges. And this is what brings an incredible amount of ease, happiness, and well-being to our lives. It's not about getting things. It's not about moving away from what we don't like. It's really about coming to ease with the way things are. They're like this. So let's just sit for a moment. So to end, I'd like to read one of my favorite poems that I like to also contemplate deeply. 
pull it apart, see what it means. I hope you've heard it, and maybe more than once, and you might have heard it from me before, too. It's The Guest House by Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows, who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond.